Hey everybody, this is Rob Beardsley with Lone Star Capital, and this is a brand new Capital Spotlight that we are doing live in New York City. Today we have Stuart, wait, Stuart Zelmanovitz. Zelmanovitz. Thank you for that. It's and always a mouthful. <laughs> um, so we've got an exciting topic today. We're going to, no preparation, just riffing, and uh, yeah, just have a good conversation. So why don't you introduce yourself and then kind of kick off the topic. All right. So... Um, I have a company called Yellowstone Property Group, and we've been in business for about three years specifically in this entity. I mean, I've been involved in a bunch of other stuff beforehand. Um, I met a partner, and we started this real estate acquisitions company. Um, trying to be, we originally we started our business, we wanted to be a little bit different than, you know, the classic multifamily syndicators. We went through a awkward phase in the beginning where we were looking for a little bit more yield than what was available in the market. And at that point, you know, it was very easy to pick up nice assets that had great yield all over the country, but we wanted to do a little bit more on the yield side. So we looked heavily into student housing, um, focusing a little bit on creative operations and things like that. We, it was long story short, we went into it and it was a terrible dud, only because we realized that the leasing velocity that happens once a year is just incredibly stressful. And it's just, it was, you had to be so cutthroat with the universities and it just, it was very hard for, as an outsider to really break in and be super successful. I mean, people do it, but um, you know, that was just the idea that we had. And at that point we said, hey, you know, we, we should be focusing on just regular multifamily um, and how are we going to go about, you know, approaching these type of assets? What are we looking for? We were just, it was a blank canvas. I was involved in deals in Dallas and Phoenix and, um, in Florida and some, some of these interesting markets before they were super hot. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, carve out something for ourselves. So we looked into, you know, well, we really need a box of what kind of, you know, assets we'd be going after. And, you know, we were looking at deals all day and we had great capital behind us and we were all excited and energized, but what really were we looking for? So we sort of dumbed it down to this idea. And at the time it was just very counterintuitive to what the investors were looking for. But in hindsight, it was, it was I think, a good push into where we are today, um, which was cash flowing assets, not necessarily, you know, pushing out 12 to 14% returns that everybody was, you know, dazzling everybody with performers about. Um, we were just looking for conservative, nice risk adjusted returns um, with, you know, just very dumb upside. Um, we weren't looking to comp out and, and create new repositioning opportunities. We were just looking, you know, how do we optimize these assets? That was number one. We need cash flow. We looked at um, we right away struck out the idea of going in for bridge finance and short-term exits and all the cool stuff that everybody was getting excited about at the time. You know, everybody was, it was just, I mean, it was halfway through the cycle where the refi, the cash out refi was the, you know, the golden goose. Um, but we didn't show that on our performance. And in the beginning, it was a little bit, um, you know, raising fan, uh, funds. Maybe harder. From, yeah, it was, it was super hard, but... I think people got really comfortable with it once the market started shifting. Um, so that was one, you know, like we looked at 10-year performers, 
even if there was a capital event, you know, not looking to cash anything out, just what happens to the cash flow along the 10-year hold period or the lifetime of the debt, which is how we showed our opportunities. Um, also, we wanted to stay local. Um, we didn't want to have to jump on planes and fly all over the country, um, which was also a challenge in finding deals that fit that box, being in, you know, New York metro based and then going out, um, you know, Pennsylvania was saturated, Connecticut was saturated, Massachusetts, New Jersey, it was just, you know, we were looking constantly and hunting down deals, but we weren't that successful in the beginning because it was very cutthroat. Eventually, thank God, we, you know, built up a rapport with everybody in the business and built up a nice pipeline, but in the beginning it was tough, but that was something we also wanted to stay focused on. And then we also didn't want, you know, wanted a low headache factor because in the beginning we were third party managing um, we would bring in partners to sort of take down the deal with us um, as managers of the property. The property managers would come in to deal with us and we would take down deals together like that. And it was sort of, we looked at it like a stepping stone with the eye on the prize of eventually starting a fully integrated um, acquisitions and management company. So that was you know, the vision that we started this thing off at. Um, you know, a few years later, we've, you know, achieved a you know decent amount of success in what we're trying to accomplish you know our investors are getting great returns the we've had some great exits um, largely due to cap rate compression but you know I wouldn't want to sell some of the deals that were like for example we're in contract to sell something now I love the asset I still don't want to sell it and I believe that the buyer is getting a fantastic deal but because where the market is right now we're just getting such incredible multiples um, so is it your Investors pushing you to sell, or no? It's just the, mar the, it's just the, the market, market is doing something, and you have to respond to it. Yeah, we have to respond to the market because it's just there's two. Even if we were to to sell it, and for the amount of profit that we're getting now, if you would just take that money, forget about real estate reinvesting, pay your capital gains, put it into an index fund or some low yield mutual fund, you'd still outperform, you know, the alternative. So. Right, so you're looking essentially at an opportunity cost of the equity, right? Basically, the market's valuing your equity as X, and mm -hmm. you're not getting a yield on that X. That right, so, I mean, cash flow is still great, which is right. the fundamental to all of our deals, and I think you and I see eye to eye on that front. Yep. Um, you know, when a deal has cash flow, it's going to be successful, you know, no matter what type of market you're in. If it's a hot market, you're going to take off like a rocket. If it's not a hot market, you're protecting your downside, and that's... The fundamentals, at least in my eyes, of what why multifamily is always the outperformer. Right. It very rarely do you get both components, and you absolutely do. So as far as your original chase of yield and finding it, or almost thinking you would find it in student housing, right? Then you found that that apparent cap rate premium wasn't really there. Did you continue that mindset for okay, we really want yield, and are you looking at you know higher cap rate? markets per se in the multi-space? So that was the challenge because we were looking at, compared to the rest of the country at the time, you know, going back to 2018, um, the, the yield was really way out there. Like, and the markets that we were looking in just didn't have that spread. So it was just very, it would have to be some hairy, weird little deal that we can just pick up you know, look at the, shake off all the noise around it and see the fundamentals around it and, you know, butt our way into the conversation and try to buy it. And that's what we did on a few deals um, in the beginning. A lot of that happened in Connecticut. 
Um, and that's really where we got a nice push and started building up real volume on you know the stuff that we had under management. So we'll, we'll get to the main topic in a second. But what I'll what I'll say is we similarly you know at our company we really wanted to find yield and. You know, we didn't like the idea of chasing growth and buying in at a low cap rate under the assumption that you know y you'll grow into your yield, and and that was before, uh, what, like you described, when that kind of yield maybe still existed, and especially if you went to secondary and tertiary markets. Today, it really seems that things have compressed across the board, and that incremental yield that you might get by let's say picking up a worse quality asset or going to a further out location, it's it's rarely worth it. Right, mm -hmm. those markets and those assets are still being bid, and so we've actually kind of started to swim upstream and, and say, actually, let's maybe maybe there's more risk-adjusted return in the better quality assets mm -hmm. that maybe do on paper have a lower yield, but we know we're getting into a fundamentally better deal and a better market. Yeah, I mean that's that's really why we focus on not having headache properties because it's the same concept. Once you're a step removed from touching the property as far as just managing your rental growth and, and just fundamentals like lease renewals and managing your expenses, if you're just that much further away from the place, you do, it's go, anything you're trying to do is gonna come with more resistance. So whether it's a different, whether it's trying to make a, a C into a B or a C location into B location or whether it's turning, um, you know, just trying to increase your, your terminal cap rate, as if you don't have the headache involved in the property, um, whether it's a Class A property, for example, or you know something similar, um, you're regardless of where you're going in on your basis, just operationally from operating the, biz the business of renting the real estate, you're going to have more success. So I think, yeah, I mean everybody's focused now. I mean now it's a little bit weird in this post-COVID like haze, but I think probably. You were thinking in January 2020, like the move right now is maybe we should be buying, you know, as soon as cap rates started um, mushing together, which is really what happened. Right. It might like, why are we buying B minuses when we can buy the other one for the same type of return in a growth market? So exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right. So go ahead and present your 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 big idea. Yeah, no, I mean it's not really a great a fantastical, you know, spectacular idea, but there's all this talk now about um, 1031 exchange and what is the new tax code and increased capital gains going to do to the real estate investment market and commercial real estate in general? Well, how do values look? What does demand look like? All the other issues that people have with it. Now my my like gut reaction to this is First of all, if there's something going on here, let's look at all the factors that are happening. I mean, you have, um, I mean, it's not just a regulation regime change. This is, there's something else happening in the economy that's, that is causing, you know, this type of a response. Um, whether you're, you know, on the blue side or the red side or the purple or whatever, something in between socially, economically, there's something changing with the country. So if you look at what happened with COVID, um, and I think that it just, it highlighted a lot of issues. I mean, um, or not really issues, but it, it really highlighted a lot of thing, you know, undercurrents that was happening. Um, number one was eventually there was going to be, you know, and whether it was COVID or some other 
issue, there was going to be this situation where we would have to stimulate the economy in some way to increase you know, spending velocity and put money into people's pockets. That's why you've been hearing about it for years with increased welfare programs. You've been hearing it about, you know, even Andrew Yang's presidential campaign was based largely around that because there was something happening to job growth um, that was fundamentally, you know, wrong with America. So there was eventually, whether it was because of this uh, stimulus or not, and I use stimulus in the, in the, not in the financial phrase, but you know, there was going to be a cause. Mm -hmm. um, whatever the cause was going to be, there was going to be some sort of, you know, helicopter money happening. And we've been looking at this. I mean, I have a friend that's, uh, that worked at one of the big banks, and we went to law school together. And we've been talking about helicopter money is coming, probably since 2013. So, you know, what, you know why it happened or what, it, what, you know, nature of how it happened, but this was going to happen. So if there was going to be... Um, you know, intense government intervention in how money is moving around the economy, um, there was obviously going to be the big question, how is it going to be paid for? So I think this, this response of 1031, you know, tax, um, tax loopholes, so to speak, and capital gain increases and corporate tax changes is just a response to, well, as a country with a balance sheet, we're going to have to figure out how to pay for all this stuff. So that you know in itself it's not an evil mission it's not that nobody's trying to go after somebody with a net worth higher you know at the highest tax bracket but what they are trying to do is just pay for some of this necessary spending that was gonna you know trickle down so to speak so if you look at that the two things happening now um there is you know you see the front cover of the wall street journal you on cnbc everywhere big talk inflation Etc. Now you have that factor going on, which we'll get to in a minute. But you also have um, this, you know, tax code change, you know, on the table. So, what is the issue? I mean, let me ask you, just you know, hypothetically, what is your issue um, with 1031 exchange going away? What do you see? How do you see that affecting things? Well, to let's just assume because it already exists that the 1031 exchange is let's just say a good thing because it already exists mm -hmm. right we're not going to debate whether or not it shouldn't have existed in the first place right. but just no, I and personally I mean people could argue with me but I believe it's a great government policy that allows for reinvestment into crumbling infrastructure and real estate so that's you know, and it promotes right. investment into assets and and also it's a very tax efficient way to I mean real estate generally is a very tax efficient way to pass down um, your wealth but so I mean, my, my initial, my gut reaction is you get rid of the 1031 exchange and, well, there's going to be less transaction activity. Similarly, you increase capital gains rate. People are going to want to sit on their assets and, you know, not turn over their assets to in incur more, more of those taxes. For, for example, I mean, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but if you just, let's say, had, let's just say you had a great asset that you knew was going to double every five years. But every five years, and when it doubled, you sold and then paid your taxes, and then mm -hmm. put it, then reinvested it again, and then doubled. Right? If you invested a dollar, right, in forty years, you'd probably end up with ten thousand dollars. But if you let's just say doubled, and every time you didn't, you'd be looking at a million dollars. That compounding would just be working at a much greater clip. So that incentive is strong to avoid transacting and paying the the, the capital gains. Um, and the higher capital gains. So I think it's going to stifle transaction activity, which 
which hurts you know the investment services business and also um, you know it hurts liquidity price discovery and those types of things right so yeah the the that is the gut reaction to this policy proposal is well you're taking you're essentially taking a illiquid asset which had some sort of liquidity aspect to it because there was this massive marketplace for properties to change to trade hands um, and now you're taking that the so to speak liquidity out of that so you're locking that up and keeping these assets by people what what that stifling could do as a practical thing to us as real estate operators and owners is well what does it do to us and what does it do to the tenants so what does it do to us um, if we're holding properties um, for the long term, which is what the outlook would be if there wouldn't be, you know, an easy way to get rid of, uh, right. you know, your or trade. What would happen is your expenses always are going to go up over time. That's that is the nature of the beast. And real estate, if you look at it fundamentally as an asset, what it is is, you know, you have you have this piece of land with bricks on it, etc. And the only reward that it's technically yielding to you is expenses because when you don't have like forget about your tenancy just the pure asset as it is you have tax you know property taxes you have to maintain the property to whatever level you need to to prevent it from going blight and you do have um, you know your utility costs that just to keep the place you know going so yep your your expenses are there now what about your tenants um, you know you, what the tenants really provide the real estate asset is a you know it's basically forward contracts that you know the real estate is attracting tenants to go live there you're signing a contract with the tenants for x amount of time that they can use your asset and provide yield to you to offset the cost of the expenses so if you can't trade the asset so to speak and we'll go to the full extreme here um you know if let's say capital gains went even further than what they're proposing now, and 1031's exchanges would really slow down, you know, completely transactional activity. Everybody would be holding their assets for the long term. When faced with an ad, you know, infinity of expenses on a performa, the only natural thing that you're going to have to do is focus on how am I going to increase rents. So, you know, as a policy, what all the, all that you know, freezing up the market through these aggressive tax policies are going to do to real estate is passed down almost immediately to the tenants in the form of rental increases. So is that a bad thing to us as property owners and, and, um, and managers and anybody in the business? Not necessarily. It's not a bad thing because more rent from the tenants means more profit technically as long as your expenses stay more or less in the trajectory that they're on. However, let's throw in what's going on inflation. right now inflation which is the big issue right now so two things are happening your expenses are increasing at a more rapid pace your rents are going to have to when you're looking at that you know infinity of holding this piece of real estate not only are you going to have to figure out how to make your rents moderately higher to just offset your expense growth you have to focus on really increasing your rents because if you're looking at the cost of any renovation right now or um, you know, doorknobs, appliances, everything up is up across the board, even today. So why is that happening? That's a whole separate economic discussion. But 
could have a lot to do with COVID. It could have a lot to do with international trade and all these other policies. But what it is going to do as an almost immediate effect, even now, you'll see year-over-year rent growth, even through COVID, is up across it's the up. country. It's up, and, it, and it's up in almost all markets. Yeah, so, it's, it's notably on, on a nationwide basis, it's slightly down. But mm-hmm. that's because you've got the major negatives. Yeah, you have coast. suburban flight and you right. have, you know, all your gateway cities have a little bit of a, of a recession. Yep. And that's understandable. But, I, but as a whole, if there wouldn't be, you know, now jumping in today where we are, you're looking at, at rent growth across the country. So it's sort of like fuel on the fire um, that will affect tenants. I don't think it's a terrible thing, but, you know, just looking at this from a more broad you know, top of the trees type of way. Um, if your inflation is hitting your supplies, your bill, your replacement costs are going up. Um, nothing is trading because you know you have a policy that makes this um, marketplace and gridlock. We have a seller who told us today that they're not comfortable selling anymore because mm-hmm. of the policy uncertainty. Right. So that itself, I mean, you're seeing that even before the policies are passed. Exactly. It's causing this. Uh, for, I don't know what the word is. Like you know just to make people colder to the idea of selling. Um, and then, but, you, but at the same time, you have asset prices increasing because of inflation. So yes. whether it's you know, commodities, whether it's you know, your consumer goods, but your building supplies are going up and building material is going up. Like right now, across the country, your average price per unit is probably at 200, I think the numbers were at like 201,000 a door as a national average, secondary markets or tertiaries, you know, you can lump them in nowadays because, you know, just transit is much easier mm-hmm. and people are working remotely. You're sort of seeing, you know, tertiaries and secondaries getting lumped are at $183,000 a unit um, on national average. And your urban core um, product is going for, I think, over 300 a door as a yep. national average. So that's just today before any of this real cost hits the market. At the same time, you have, the, you have this massive supply and demand crunch because at the end of the day, the population is growing and this has never been going away. This issue has been here for a while. There is, there is a big demand for rental properties still. Yeah, especially in the workforce sector. Exactly. So if you have that demand, you have inflation pushing your expenses up, you have 1031 freezing your transactional volume, and you also have the values of the actual assets going up. You're just you're looking at extreme. I wouldn't even call it hyperinflation on as, when it's referring specifically to rent growth, but you can expect your rent to increase probably to numbers that you would have modeled for otherwise by investing fifteen thousand dollars in an apartment to renovate over the three-year performer that you were otherwise looking at. So it's sort of I, at least for us, we're just taking stock of all this and saying, okay, so you know we're buying this asset, we're putting, we're investing X, Y, and Z into the into the amenities and to the into the uh, units themselves, but do we really need to? Because the rents will be there anyway. It's so a, that's just another twist that we're thinking about, and it's also making us think about our our portfolio. Maybe we shouldn't sell it because if we bought something for sixty thousand dollars a door three years ago, right now. It's for sure going to sell for 110 a door. Let's hold on for the long run and see it hit 200. The, the trouble also is 
the, the transaction of, you know, when a, when a new owner comes in, they're often bringing fresh capital, right? It often takes, there's nothing stopping the current owner from investing into the asset. Uh, but for whatever reason, it, it often doesn't happen. For example, if a property is owned in a, in a fund vehicle, right, they, they might, they just have their business plan and then it's time to sell and it's time to sell. So with that fresh capital gives the opportunity for value add and bringing up the quality of assets. So if you have a asset that's you know, in need of, of rehab really to, to bring it up and improve the quality of living for the tenants and all that, um, that you know, stifling the transaction market can hurt that as well. And I've, I've seen that, you know, uh, I've seen that in the news, people that are advocates of affordable housing and you know, manage REITs with, mm -hmm. with that kind of mission, that's what they fear also, is that a lot of that 1031 capital is actually providing, uh, you know, is conducive to the, the mission of providing affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at the beginning of, you know, speaking about affordable housing, at the beginning of COVID, um, you know, and I, I knew from the beginning that, you know, obviously there was gonna be massive regulatory things happening and policies that are gonna have to go into place to really kick a debt economy and keep it going. But one of the things that I was looking at was, hey, you know, what, are, what is the national um, burden? Like, what, what do people need to make sure that, what do they need to make sure that their life is intact and they have a quality of life? You have food, you have, you know, your basic health services, but you also have housing. Um, housing, you know, shockingly enough, compared to the trillions of dollars that were being, um, you know, that is being produced or created by the Fed, um, and you know, et cetera, the treasury, what's happening is you're, you're looking at a total rent across the country national of, you know, uh, of a annual rent of about a quarter of a trillion dollars. It's not a tremendous amount of money. So the idea originally was, okay, let's just hold on. You know, everybody was calling me up, all the operators, everybody's freaking out. What are we going to do here? Should we, should we hold off on paying our mortgages? Should we hold off on you know, try negotiating with later uh, payment dates for vendors, et cetera? Um, but the answer really was, eventually you're gonna have mass stimulation by the government to make sure that people stay in their houses because the one thing that the government doesn't wanna do is now start becoming a landlord. So if you look at it as $250 billion of rent that needs to be paid, it's not that much. So that in itself, you know, clicked in my head and, and we were like, okay, well, this is just the beginning. Let's see how the government responds to this stuff. But affordable housing is a massive issue right now. The government, all they can do is throw money at private operators to, um, you know, provide housing because the de pure demand that's needed to house people on an affordable basis, the government can't build that kind of infrastructure. And frankly, I'm kind of shocked that the new infrastructure bill didn't, you know, you know, forget about the infrastructure bill. There should have been a second infrastructure bill directed specifically at affordable housing. Um, but I think the reason you won't, you didn't see it and you won't see it um, in such a robust way is because they can't do it. All they can do is provide Section 8 vouchers. I mean, in some of our markets, um, we have great tenants coming to us with, you know, the government's practically handing out Section 8 vouchers yep. like it's candy. And that's great because now people have great places to live. I know my apartments are well kept and they're, and they're uh, gonna have a nice, warm, healthy quality of life. Um, and the government's you know, paying them to do it. So I'm not complaining about that. And looking at what the values 
where values are going, if we're only at the beginning of this excitement, um, I think that real estate values are just going to go shooting through the moon. So speaking of value, we were talking about inflation, driving rents and everything, and then also how potentially 1031 exchange going away, even you have to pass through that expense. There's a debate there, but passing through that expense to the tenants. What about cap rates? As rent growth, you know, people are willing to, let's say, pay a lower cap rate mm -hmm. if they know rent growth is there, right? So on the one hand, you can say, wow, cap rates are going to go lower because there's all this excitement. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, inflation hurts a cap rate because... Interest rates. Inter yeah. If my risk-free rate comparison on, to my cap rate is a 10-year treasury, mm -hmm. which is 1.5%, but then let's say it goes to 3 then that's upward pressure on the cap rate. Right. So I think we're at a little bit, I mean, I'm no expert on this. I just know what I see, read, and, and how I translate into my own business. But my gut feeling is we're at an interesting stalemate right now where the government can't necessarily raise interest rates to meet the kind of inflation that we're actually experiencing because there's just too much cheap debt out there um, for the government to just you know, turn the fires on and then you know, match with increased interest rates, you're gonna be dealing with, so first of all, just the yield that they would have to provide on treasuries to just, you know, for that kind of scenario to happen. Like let's say Fed rate, you know, we're committed to keeping it near zero for the next couple of years. That's taken care of. Treasuries is the big um, question because how many billions are just living on the tenure um, you know, from the agency back that, which is what most of transactional volume and multifamily is based on, um, you're looking at a situation that, you know, if you have constant trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulation, and just in the last year, the amount of money that they put out, for the government to pay such debt payments with a higher yield to provide, that itself might be crippling and self-harm to the United States. So. Because they can't, I mean, besides for that, so there's that, and then they also can't just raise interest rates because of all the debt that's out there that would also have this, um, you know, slowdown or cooling of the economy and people wouldn't be able to have access to debt markets. Um, that itself puts us in an awkward position right now where your, your concern was, how do you buy a low cap rate when you don't know if rent growth is there? Well, if any indication is correct from all this inflation data, that you know, lumber, steel, your, your core fundamentals of what real estate is built out of is on its way up in an extremely rapid fashion, the rent growth is there. You just don't see it yet. And that's nothing to do with a growth market. It has nothing to do with whether you're in Phoenix, Arizona, or Albuquerque, or New York City for that matter. What it means is, is that this fact pattern that we're in right now just it means that we are, are going to experience rent growth. So I think that's why you're seeing a quick compression of all cap rates across all asset classes and across all you know, suburban, urban core, class A, B, C, across the markets because people are willing to pay higher premiums even if it's a lower cap rate because you can be almost sure that rents will be going up over the next few years. And you have no other alternatives. Right. I mean, you can invest in, forget about, I mean, let's look at commercial real estate, right? You can't really throw money into hospitality assets because any, you know, any kind of reports or data that you're looking at right now with all this 
you know, instant gratification of post-COVID hoorah is it's temporary. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, people have more money to spend and the government's, you know, flights are open and everything is open. Municipalities are allowing dining and events and all that and people are getting vaccinated. But that's a temporary rush towards these, you know, towards the usefulness of these assets. Hospitality assets in general, that's that's a big fat question. Um, office space, right? We're sitting in a city of dead buildings right now. You can walk up on, on you know, where some of the biggest law firms and et cetera were on Third Avenue and some of these buildings are 15% technically occupied. So that itself is a massive question. And are the funds going to throw money into risky questions when their only mission is to provide um, safe yield? I don't think so. Um, it's right. going into multi. All right. The, uh, uh, the allocations within commercial real estate are being forced into industrial multi. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at just general allocations where you have you know, public private debt, public equities and commercial real estate, it's still the most attractive. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been steadily and on a secular base attracting more institutional capital. So it's, it's, there's a lot of things that are driving the compression of cap rates. And that's been something that we've stopped really fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that would re- really hold us back in our pro formas a lot is just we we just felt like, well, cap rates have to go, they have to revert to the mean or they just mm-hmm. have to expand and this and that. And we've just I mean, sure, it could happen. And, and I know there are some very smart investors out there that are sitting on the sidelines telling me that, hey, I'm going to jump back in when cap rates go to 8 mm-hmm. percent. I say, OK, well, that's that's fantastic, but I don't think they'll ever do mm-hmm. that. And so the way that, that we've come to get comfortable, like you said at the very beginning, is cash flow. Because if, for whatever reason, we buy a solid asset that we think is, is great fundamentally and has strong cash flow, but the cap, but cap rates go to 8%, that deal is underwater. That mm-hmm. deal is, has no value, but we'll still have great cash flow. Mm-hmm. And we won't have to be, we won't be a forced seller or anything like that because, you know, again, we're financing correctly and conservatively. So I think that is, the, the way to proceed, one of the ways to proceed with, in light of everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the asset for its utility um, as an asset that provides yield. So again, that even in a market, even in a world where, where cap rates are shoot up and, and interest rates shoot up to you know, some of the worst crises that we've had, um, just for what the building is worth Purely as an asset, it'll. I believe it'll still offset even increased re- interest rates, um, replacement costs. You need to focus on that because, you know, forget about what your rents are right now. Forget about if you're buying a good basis on an apartment or on you know apartment complex as a scale, you're going to have the value there. It's just deep. You don't realize it right now, but there's deep value, um, and the cash flow there, you know, certainly. There will be debt products in the future, even in, in a heightened interest rate environment or regulatory policies that will will allow for, you know, just um, lenders and the debt markets to push their boundaries and to, you know, focus on that as opposed to just the traditional metrics. That's an interesting point. Yeah, because like you said, if, if cap rates do widen, then there will be a situation where, because right now we're in a market where when you're seeking debt, the constraint is debt service coverage ratio and not loan to value. Mm-hmm. Value is there because cap rates are really low, value is mm-hmm. super high. So you're never, you're not often value constrained, you're often cash flow constrained, but you might be in a market where it flips 
and values actually come down and then you've got you've got plenty of DSCR, you've got plenty mm -hmm. of cash flow to cover the debt service, but you know, you're bumping up against that seventy five or eighty yeah. percent loan to value constraint. And honestly that's that's a buy signal. That's the best time to buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for all those reasons, I mean we're bullish right now. And again, exactly like you guys, we would have looked at some of these cap rates a year and a half ago and said, This is not for us, this is first, you know, uh, one of these just to give a nod to your partners yeah. for MetLife to invest in. But now that we're, you know, in this environment, we, you know, are looking at these fundamentals and we say, hey, you know, it, it's true we're getting a, a bridge loan for 3.4% from Greystone. Shout out to Dan Sachs. Um, and it is true that we're getting, you know, floating rate um, Freddie Mac. Um, we're getting at 245 yeah 245 250 in some situations is this is it's incredible and it is floating and we can hedge it you know and we'll you know put aggressive cap uh rate caps on on the debt um but you know people ask me are you worried about the exit on some of these um on some of these loans well in the near term perhaps but i think if you try to you know extend if you have a 10-year debt and if you do have, you know, something longer than five years, or I, I would say three-year debt, I, I wouldn't take at this point, um, unless there's a very clear path to value creation, to value creation or exit um, that was just underwritten thoroughly from the beginning, and we felt very confident in taking such a risk. But if you have a long-term um, balloon, again, like you say, the LTV versus DSCR issue, it's going, it it will shift and and change, and you'll be able to get, you know whatever you need in the future to prevent, you know, this massive throwing of keys back at the banks. Right. So you mentioned you're buying aggressively tight rate caps. Mm -hmm. and, and for those that aren't familiar, an interest rate cap is a way to partially hedge your floating rate exposure. So you can basically buy a ceiling. Uh, so your rate can float and fluctuate, but hit a ceiling and then anything above it, you're capped. So, so where are you buying that cap today? Um, we're, I think there's just a couple places, uh, SMBC. No, I mean, as far as where it, oh, we, we're trying to buy, 4%. I mean, right now it's changing a little bit because there, I think the, the markets that are, um, the actual hedgers are taking on, looking at a little bit more risk with interest rates, but you know, stuff that we looked at a couple of months ago and capping, um, we were looking at a, you know, a 50 basis point strike on, on sofer you know slash LIBOR or whatever whichever equivalent you want to use it can be expensive on the way in but i think us as operators and our investors appreciate you know spending the three hundred thousand dollars upfront cost um where we can sleep and not worry about let's say 2022 debt skyrocketing you know we know that at least if we are we do have that loan at 3.4 percent it will be capped at 3.9 right yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that is, a, that is a very tight strike. And something that's also interesting uh, about the rate cap market, and it sounds like you have some, some interesting information there as well, is the, is the LIBOR to SOFR change. And you know, essentially, they're the same benchmark or the same index, but there's a transition. And so the market is much newer for SOFR. And so the hedging market, in particular for SOFR, is far less liquid. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at needing to buy a SOFR cap. And it's double the price almost mm -hmm. as a LIBOR cap, right? It really, it's the functionally equivalent, mm -hmm. 
but just given the liquidity in that market, we have to pay double. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. I mean, we're still. I think it, with every month that goes by, I think it's, it's getting better. It's getting better. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, you know, with that in mind, what are I mean? What are you seeing? You mentioned SMBC. They're. I mean, as far mm -hmm. as I know, they're the best in the business. What mm -hmm. else are you seeing? No, I think we've done everything with SMBC. Um, but you know, you can pick a broker that'll show it to some of the uh, some of the top. Um, you know, buyers of this type of stuff. And it's generally, you know, there's a marketplace for it. Um, who do we use? I, I don't remember, but, you know, just good folks that focus exclusively on rate caps and yep. swaps and, you know, the whole derivative market. But that's just like, you know, the little sprinkle on the, on the real estate deal for us. Right, there, yep, it's just another small, small point. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Well, anything else you want to touch? No, I'm just. How how are you guys doing out in uh, in Houston? Well, I'd say all things considered, we're doing very well. Mm -hmm. We Texas as a whole had that big storm mm -hmm. recently, which was just added complexity to an already complex and difficult situation. And I'd say at the end of the day, the actual negative impact of COVID is minor, mm -hmm. but the impact to property and asset management is, is pretty major. All of a sudden, you know, week over week collections, delinquency, all that becomes so much more important and, and we're just staying on top of the tenants and you know, a lot more effort on the collection side with promise to pays and mm -hmm. payment arrangements and, and then um, you know, the eviction moratorium made things so much more complicated as mm -hmm. that door swung open and shut. So uh, that you know, just made things more complicated, but at the end of the day, we're doing very well. Like you said, especially in the secondary markets like Houston, for example, rents are up. And then when you zoom in in particular uh, on the type of assets that we pursue in, you know, suburban garden style workforce housing, um, there's limited new supply and the demand is growing. And so, so there's been very positive rent growth. If you look around pretty much all across the country and you look at CBDs mm -hmm. and you know essentially the, the the walkable class A areas rents are negative mm -hmm. and so even if you look at a you know premier market like Austin they just built too much and Austin in the class A space has negative rent growth mm -hmm. yeah Austin San Francisco New York Boston even Boston um, yeah and you're seeing interesting markets that are popping up with tremendous rent growth and the best part is is that the data that anybody eats up about this stuff, it doesn't even reflect some of these properly, some of these secondaries like RealPage or, you know, somebody that's, you know, analyzing all the, all the metrics, they're going to present, I mean, it's easy to just pick 20 markets and just analyze where they stand. But when you zone into like specific submarkets, there are some submarkets that are just have a natural seven, 8% rental increase that nobody knows about. I mean, I mean, I can share this, but Providence, Rhode Island right now has just tremendous rent growth. Um, Manchester, New Hampshire, we have stuff there, um, seven to 10% year over year. Um, yeah, even a deal that we're about to get into in, in Delaware, um, just right outside of Philly, also, it just has a, a year over year of like 5%. And, you know, it's, that's the job of us as the hunters um, to find such opportunities, these mini growth markets, um, and it's kind of exciting. Yeah, that's something we've become much more
focused on on growth, which is kind of it's like coming full full circle because we kind of shunned growth because mm -hmm. we thought people were overpaying for it, but now we're coming to realize that you, you know you, you you can't live without it. You mm -hmm. can't because you're you're everywhere you look, you're going to pay growth pricing. So you might as well actually buy where mm -hmm. there is growth. And similarly, every deal is a value add deal. Mm -hmm. So it's not a function of well, let's find the well priced, not value add deal. It's no, you just have to find the deal that actually is a value add, that has a true upside, has the real story that's defensible with comps and everything. So we've become a lot more focused on population growth, um, you know, household income, job growth, all that stuff, to to justify us being in that location. Because I mean, realistically, if you if you make the numbers a certain way, you could justify buying anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's really being more, I'd say, uh, explicit about where you want to be from a growth perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say once if you have your cash flow, if you're in a zero to you know positive growth market, and you're you're not dealing with a lot of deferred maintenance, then the rest is up to market conditions. And within this inflationary environment, I think you guys, your portfolio is going to do very well. So congratulations and good luck on continuing to provide your tenants with, you know, a superior rental option. Well, thank you very much. And on that note, we will end it there. Thanks so much for being on and the sure. first live guest. And I look All forward righty. to, uh, to having pleasure. you on again soon. Absolutely.